2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting from verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Please flip forward a few books. We're going to be reading from Philippians chapter 3. Philippians is after Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to start from verse 2. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever, I, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming, in him, becoming like him in his death. Father in heaven, we give you thanks so much that you reveal yourself, to, reveal yourself to us through your word. And we give you thanks that as we have been looking at over the past couple of weeks, this doctrine, this topic, this theme in your word that, sh that shows us clearly who we are before you. Father, we pray today that you, by your spirit you would help us to grapple with this theme, this idea. This idea that not only changed your church, but change the world. Father, we pray as well uh, that you would bless me, help me to speak clearly from your word and, and present this idea clearly. And we pray for ourselves to hear this, to marvel at Jesus and to keep trusting and persevering and trusting him. For we pray these things in Jesus' most beautiful name. Amen. When you think about the idea that changed the world... What came to your mind? What did you begin discussing? You could go all the way back in fuzzy, hazy history to the invention of the wheel. Uh, truly revolutionary. Now humans could move heavy objects and transport, la transport large loads across great distances. You could think of the Wright brothers who put together the first plane and kick-started a travel revolution. 
right? Between Austra England to Australia, if you wanted to go via sailboat, it would take you quite a couple of months, two to, two to three months. Uh, with steamboat and power engines, that cut it back to a couple of weeks. But if you caught a plane from Brisbane to London today, it would take you 22 hours. When you think about that idea, uh, about ideas that changed the world, you might even cast your mind back to a mere 10 years ago when Steve Jobs announced the combination of a personal digital assistant, a phone, and an iPod together in the very first iPhone. Since then, smartphones have evolved and multiplied, and our lives have been radically changed by them. When it comes to ideas that changed the church, well, you can't look too far past our topic for today. Justification. This was the key doctrine in dispute in the Reformation 500 years ago. 500 years ago, a young Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther was busy trying to read and understand the book of Romans. But there was a stumbling block right at the very beginning in chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, Paul speaks of the righteousness of God as uh, being revealed. But this idea of the righteousness of God being revealed was something that Luther hated. He hated this idea, this idea that as wretched sinners, God would continue to punish us. As if miserable sinners had enough problems not only being crushed by the guilt and also their guilt and also being crushed under the law and the Ten Commandments, only now to have God add to their pain by the gospel. Nevertheless, he pushed through. Luther speaks of beating on the text until its meaning came out to him. And after some time, Luther reports that the mercy of God broke at last. Finally, he was able to understand what that phrase meant. He looked at the context. Imagine that, looking at context to work out meanings of words. He looked at the context and realized something that changed his world and would go on to change the church. He finally realized that the righteousness of God doesn't reveal a punitive, angry God ready to smash helpless sinners. Rather, the righteousness of God reveals a merciful God who justifies sinners by faith. Instead of an angry God ready to punish sinners, Luther realized that Paul was pointing to the thing that sinners need the most, a merciful God ready to justify them, ready to make them innocent in his sight. And when he came to this realization, he wrote this, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates, there, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon, I ran through the scripture from memory. I also found in other terms an analogy as the work of God, that is, what God does in us, the power of God with which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. Do you hear those words? Do you hear that passion? Do you hear that change from hatred to love, from a place of fear to the gates of paradise itself? 
When Martin Luther recaptured this teaching from the Bible, it, it changed everything. Soon after that, he began to notice the spiritual abuse that was happening in the Catholic Church. And it actually centered around this very doctrine. Now, let's be clear. Luther didn't just have a different interpretation. And this wasn't just a minor issue. So important was this doctrine that he would later say, For so you have heard, and it is always preached, that this one article preserves the church of Christ. When it is lost, Christ and the church are lost. This, is these, this article is the sun, the day, the light of the church, and of all believers. He was absolutely right. If we get this doctrine wrong, if we mistake it or modify it, one of the central truths about what we believe will shatter. The doctrine of justification has become so central to our understanding that it is now sometimes shorthand for the gospel, and the gospel would make no sense without it. So, with such a profound weight behind it, let's turn now to asking the most basic question. How does the Bible define justification? Here's a common definition. To be justified means to be forgiven and declared innocent by God because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, to get an idea of how this works, I, I did a mini-survey during the week. I asked a lot of people around me in different fellowship groups and at church last week, I asked them to think about the pictures and the metaphors that come to mind when you think about what it means to be justified by God, to be forgiven by Him and declared innocent by Him. Now, the second most common picture, I'll just give you two, uh, the second most common picture was this picture of sacrifice. Uh, it's also a common picture from the Old Testament, the picture of a lamb or another animal brought before the temple and the altar before God. Symbolically, that animal would receive your sin and then its life would be taken. Why... Why this brutal and bloody sacrifice provided and required by God? Because we need forgiveness and we need it badly. Because we have sinned and that sin deserves a penalty and the penalty is more than we can bear. So God mercifully and graciously provided a substitute. Instead of us laying on the altar, taking the penalty that we deserve, an animal is substituted in our place. That animal dies so that we might be forgiven and seen as innocent in God's eyes. The second, by far the most common illustration, however, was the illustration of the courtroom. Apparently someone said, I've used this before. I searched my sermons. I haven't. So... Right? When I ask people, it's a good illustration though, but when I ask people what picture comes to mind most often, they think of God justifying the sinner in a courtroom. We picture God as the judge, reading out our long list of crimes, the sins that we have committed in life. It takes a lifetime to read out those sins, sins that we have clearly committed and even sins that we are not even aware of. It takes a lifetime to read them out, and then he finally gets to the end, and the verdict is as clear as day, guilty. 
The penalty is far too great, a debt that is impossible to pay off. The only punishment is eternal death. Yet before we are taken off to prison to begin our sentence, our defense lawyer arrives at the right moment. It's Jesus. He offers to pay the penalty in our place. God the judge is satisfied, and so because Jesus pays it all, we are declared innocent and free. Now, if you've been in churches for any length of time, this is probably an illustration you've heard before, and I do think that this courtroom one in particular is helpful. It helps us understand and remember that when Paul speaks of sinners being justified, he is using legal language, the language of the courtroom, and that is right and that is proper. Being justified has a very legal nature. God is a just God. He is a God of perfect justice. And so when he declares us innocent... That has real legal, that is, has a real legal status before God. It is not a fiction. It is not imaginary. To stand before God innocent and righteous in this way reminds us that I am not born righteous. There is nothing in me inherently righteous. As I stand before God in this way, it also reminds us that we cannot obtain it, we cannot earn this status. You cannot be justified in God's eyes apart from trusting Jesus Christ. So these two illustrations, the sacrifice in the courtroom, they're wonderful. They contain rich biblical truths and they point us to the good news of the gospel. But as good as they are, they don't quite capture the whole truth about our justification. See, as helpful as these pictures are, they present justification as something external to us. Justification is about as personal to you as your graduation certificate from high school or university. It's nice. You hang it on your wall. Show people that you graduated from QUT. And if I begin to doubt my education, well, I just need to look up at that picture, at that certificate, and say, see, I graduated. We can treat justification in the same way. A certificate that hangs on the wall that we look at every now and then to give ourselves a little pat on the back. I hope you can already see where this might not be helpful. You see, if we treat justification as something that is only external to our souls, then what you can end up doing is you can begin to focus on the benefits of following Jesus and not on the person of Jesus. We treat Jesus as the one we need to believe in to get the benefits because it's the benefits that are most real to us. Jesus becomes a means to justification, something that he has done for us, and that cheapens him. It it turns him into the vehicle and not the destination and robs him of glory. There's also another subtle problem that I see more often. When we treat justification as something external to us, then we end up seeing justification as something that flows out of Jesus' death. And then we also see that sanctification flows out of our justification. So we end up thinking something like this. We see that Jesus dies for us. And that leads to our justification, which leads then to our sanctification. But here's the problem. When we don't feel that sanctified, when you mess up, 
in sin and, and you fail to be holy or you fail to honor God or you fail to love your neighbors or your family or, or you stumble in that sin that so easily entangles, then you can begin to doubt your justification and then you start to think, okay, look, <clears throat> if I truly believed that Jesus has died for me, if I truly believed that God sees me as innocent, then I would not end up doing this. And so the solution to your sanctification problem is to try harder to believe the right thing. But at the same time, trying harder ends up making Jesus' death less personal, more distant, more removed from us. And you know, that hits our assurance. We only feel confident of our assurance when we're doing well. We're, we'll feel less certain when we're not doing so well, and all because what Jesus has done for us is out there. So two pretty major issues there. We focus on the benefits of following Jesus and not Jesus himself, and we end up distancing ourselves from what Jesus has done. And if we're not failing, falling into these issues, then perhaps we're just in that subtle danger of treating justification as a certificate that we hang on the wall, and it's, it's nice to know that it's there. Now, at this point, I would like to quote John Calvin again, not only because I just love Calvin, but he's, he's encouraging us and warning us. We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. That's true. If you've felt this sense of wanting to, of needing to try harder to, to believe and to understand then maybe what we've done is we've kept Jesus separated from us and we've realized or experienced that his death is, is of lesser value. Justification is the central doctrine of the Christian faith. It is necessarily at the heart of what we, what we believe. Without, the gospel, it, it, without it, the gospel makes no sense. And if what Jesus has done remains outside of us, I think there will be a fundamental disconnect between what Christians know and what they experience. So here's the good news for us today. The New Testament paints a different picture or a picture that is much more personal and intimate in a way that does, not, that does make it of central value to our lives. To get there, though, we have to go through a paradigm shift. We've, we've got to change the way that we fundamentally see ourselves. In 1847, a Hungarian physician and scientist by the name of Ignaz Semmelweis noticed that student doctors were carrying infections from dead bodies to women who were giving birth. Consequently, the number of women who were dying after seeing those students was two to three times higher than the already high average of around 20%. So 20% of women in labor, in childbirth, ended up dying from other infections. So what did Semmelweis order his students to do? Wash their hands. He wasn't exactly sure why this would work, but it did. The effect was immediate. The mortality rate dropped to below 1%, and in the years following, 
no more women in childbirth died from this particular infection. Semmelweis's idea eventually gained acceptance only after his death, and it was Louis Pasteur who confirmed the germ theory. Semmelweis's idea fundamentally changed the way that we saw the problem. And now we cannot imagine a world where doctors do not wash their hands. And even us, we wash our hands before eating and, and other activities as well. That simple idea changed the world. Now, I mentioned before that when Martin Luther recaptured what justification meant, it changed the church. Well, understanding how justification relates to union with Christ can change the way that you think of yourself and your whole Christian life. Now, as Ben mentioned a few weeks ago when we started this series, this is not a new idea. This idea is littered throughout the New Testament, hiding in plain sight. Uh, we're not going to survey every Bible verse, but if you wanted to, I think it would be really appropriate and really helpful. And let me encourage you to do this as you go home and during this week, open up your favorite Bible app or, or find it online so you can use the searched functions. And search out how often in him or in Christ or with Christ or with him appears. And then as you go through that list, I want you to spend time working out what's being said in context and how being united to Jesus helps us work out what is going on. We're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at a few passages from Paul in particular and see how they might shift our thinking, how they might encourage us and, and give us a greater sense of an awe of what Jesus has done for us. So let's restart that definition of what justification is. Let's, say, let's start here. Justification is the declaration of innocence and righteousness of the believer by union with Jesus. Let's turn now to Romans chapter 8 and see how this first verse helps us understand justification better. Uh, just for your benefit, I've got them up on the screen because there's going to, just so that we can kind of uh, not have to flip them around too much. But let me read Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That's it from verse 33. Uh, in Romans 8, we have this towering chapter in what is already a towering book of the New Testament. In the previous seven chapters, Paul has forcefully argued that all humanity has a sin problem. Uh, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you've got a sin problem. We are all rebels against God. We have all rejected God and done things that have brought shame upon us and shame upon God. By the start of chapter 3, Paul shows the incredible depth of the problem. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. And the penalty for all this is God's perfect and right and proper judgment. But from the second half of chapter 3 all the way to the end of chapter 7, Paul says that God has done something remarkable to address this dire situation. He has sent his son, Jesus. Jesus has died in our place. And anyone who trusts what Jesus has done can be forgiven and reconciled to God as their father. And the, and the argument culminates now in chapter 8 with a big therefore, picking up on everything that he said now in the last seven chapters of the argument. Paul beautifully says it right there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Our condemnation is something we all know too well. It's that gnawing, guilty conscience that you've done, not only done something terribly wrong, but the weight of it is too much to bear. The terrible problem we all face is that our guilt requires a penalty that is far too much for us to tackle alone. Now, this is where the first illustration of justification is helpful, sacrifice. In the Old Testament, God gave his people animals as substitutes in their place. Their blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Why blood? Because life was in the blood. When blood was spilled, life was taken. Forgiveness from God requires blood. And to, sh to show us how serious the problem is, and the best blood of all is that of Jesus. For those who are united to Jesus, there is forgiveness, and there is no more condemnation. You see it at the end there of verse 1. It is no, it is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He is the shelter in the storm. A man with the unfortunate name of Augustus Toplady experienced something like this. Out for an afternoon stroll, one afternoon, he found himself caught in the middle of a raging storm. Far from home, he found a little crevice inside a big rock to hide in. And from this cleft in the rock, he was safe from the raging storm. From inside the safety of his shelter, it dawned on him what Jesus had done for him. And so he wrote these beautiful words that we sing to this day. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. See, if you are in Jesus, united to him as one, then he is your shelter. At some point in the future, Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. There will be no refuge from him. There will be no place that you can run and hide from him. But there is refuge in him. And if you are in him, Paul says in Romans 8 verse 33, then no one can accuse you or condemn you anymore. Why? Not because you yourself have done nothing wrong, but because you are in Jesus. No one can accuse or bring any charge against Jesus. That was the whole point of the trials that we saw at the end of the Gospel of Mark. And what, we saw, what you see in all the Gospel writers, all the Gospel writers are clear. Jesus was innocent of all the charges thrown against him. Nobody could bring a charge or accusation against him. And if you are in Jesus, no one can bring a charge against you because Jesus is your shelter. God is the one who has justified you. So, if God is the one who justifies and he justifies on account of Jesus, that means that whatever good things that we have done in the past no longer matter. This was the startling realization of Paul in Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here in Philippians 3, uh, chapter 3, Paul begins by warning the church about some Jewish false teachers who are trying to influence the church. Let me take a 30-second aside for a moment and encourage us to not be surprised that we keep mentioning false teaching. Every letter of the New Testament deals with false teaching in some way, shape, or form. If we have the truth of the gospel... And obviously, one of Satan's biggest attacks is to try and flood the church with false teaching. So we must be aware of it. Anyway, here in Philippines, uh, these false teachers had come in, and they were drawing attention to their impressive Jewish credentials. And so Paul comes in and he says, if these guys over there are pointing to their heritage and resume, well, let's compare notes. Then in verses 3 to 6, he lays down his own very impressive Jewish resume, and it is very impressive. Let me put it this way. Imagine if Paul was applying for an IT job at a local business at Hawken Drive, and on his resume, you find out that he's the son of Bill Gates, that he helped the boys at Google get their website and algorithm together. He's had 20 years' experience in the industry, and he's got a personal reference letter from Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. And so here's Paul saying to the Philippians, if you think those guys over there look impressive, look at me. I am way more impressive. And you know what? Whatever gain or whatever advantage I have, whatever you would consider desirable in this world, I now count as loss for the sake of Christ. Everything that was impressiveness is now nothing to me. All that was desirable is now worthless. And all that worthless, all of that worthless compared to knowing Jesus and being found in him. In verse 9 right there, Paul says it right there, to be found in him, to be in union with Christ is way better. Because when you're united with Christ, you have a righteousness that is not your own. This means two things. First, it means that you cannot earn your righteousness before God. It doesn't matter how bad you have been. God is able and he is willing to forgive you. But it also means that it doesn't matter how good you have been. You, could have, have a, you might have a beautiful family, a wonderful home. You've done well in life and all that is well and good. And I'm not taking away from that at all. But you cannot and you should not rely on that When you stand before God, it is only in Christ that you can be considered righteous. Something that Paul echoed in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30. Only in Jesus are we wise, righteous, sanctified and redeemed. You cannot earn it. Secondly, if you cannot earn it, then it is by faith alone that you receive it. Paul trusted Jesus alone to receive that righteousness. And that is why it has, and that is how it has always been. It's what Paul says in Romans 4 and 5. It is by faith, by trusting what Jesus has done for us, that we can be united to him. This is crucial to get our heads and our hearts around. It is not what you've done, but only by trust 
then it, and if it is not by what you've done and only by trust, then your confidence is going to be rooted in who Jesus is and what he's done. Your confidence is not in how good you are or how much faith you have. It's not about the quantity of your faith. The confidence, your confidence in, is in who you put your faith in. So if you lack confidence, I've asked this question a couple of times over the last few weeks. How confident are you in your faith to stand before Jesus? Some people have said, I feel very confident because it's rooted in what Jesus has done. A number of people are not sure. And so if that's you, if your confidence is lacking, then the best thing you can do is get to know Jesus better. The more you know Jesus, the more you can trust him, and the more your assurance will grow. And if you feel confident in your faith, if you know that you can stand before Jesus, the best thing you can do is keep grounding that confidence in Jesus alone. Confidence in anything else is false confidence at best. Now here's a good time to turn to 2 Corinthians 5 and see again where our true confidence needs to lie. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In 2 Corinthians, Paul addresses another church with a whole other set of problems. And by this point in his letter, he's been explaining the gospel message of being reconciled to God. Come back to God in renewed relationship with him. Why? Because God has reconciled us to himself. And God has done it through a big swap. Now in this verse, you can see two big swaps happening. The first swap you can see happens in the first half of the verse. God made Jesus, who was sinless, to be sin. So what happened on the cross is that God took the sinfulness of humanity off of humanity and placed it on Jesus. So that when God the Father looked upon his son hanging on that cross, he no longer saw an innocent man. God the Father saw the most vile, and sinful person in the whole of human history. God effectively saw sin itself embodied on the cross. And it was there that God poured out his wrath and his anger and his judgment against sin. Jesus took our sinfulness for us. Now, if we were only given the first half of this verse, that would make us a clean slate a blank piece of paper with nothing on it. And so that leads to the second swap that takes place. Jesus took our sin, but then we are taken into him. We are taken into Jesus so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is perfectly righteous. Jesus has never sinned. He never rebelled against his father. He never gave into temptation, even though the depth of his temptation was as deep, if not deeper, than we have ever felt. But this doesn't mean that Jesus was a clean sheet of paper. No, not only had Jesus never sinned, but he had always done what was good and pleasing to his father. 
his sheet of paper is filled with all the good deeds that he has done. It is packed to the brim. Remember when you were in high school, you were allowed one piece of paper to go with into the exam, right, with all your notes on it? And what did people do? They would write in size six font and fill the page. It looked like this kind of mosaic of just notes, right, back and forward, right? Because you only got one piece of paper. Well, that's Jesus, and that's his whole life. Whole life filled with all the good deeds that he's done. Now, get this. What God does is that he takes our sin and he places it on Jesus. So Jesus bears that sin on the cross and he pays the penalty for it with his own life. He dies under that penalty, but then he is raised back to life. Jesus' resurrection proves that he didn't die for his sins, but he died for the sins of others. And now that death was done, God was satisfied with his payment for our sins, and he is raised back to righteous life. And get this, when we trust Jesus, we are now united to him. And that righteous life of Jesus, that sheet of paper filled with all the good that he has ever done, is now ours. We are brought into Jesus, united with him, so that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son. When God forgives you, he doesn't just wipe your slate clean. He brings you into perfect union with his son so that when he sees you, he sees someone who has and will always please him. Paul says that we might become the righteousness of God because it is achieved through trusting Jesus alone. If you trust Jesus, if you, place that, if you believe that he died and rose again for you, then God takes your sin, places it on Jesus, punishes it, deals with it, and then brings you into union with Jesus so that you will always be righteous in his sight forever. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we come away asking what we must do in response. And that's not a bad question at all. And don't miss that sometimes the best response, however, is just to gasp in awe and wonder. Gasp in wonder at this exchange. Our sinfulness onto Christ and us united with Christ so that his perfection is ours as well. Author and pastor David Platt shares the story of how on his wedding day, his wedding day brought about some pretty big changes in his life. He shares, I remember when my wife and I were engaged in the year before we were married. We were living totally different lives. I was finishing college, living on little income, actually no income, no cash flow, scraping by in my last semesters, eating instant noodles for most of my meals. Meanwhile, Heather had graduated from college and was teaching at elementary school, which meant she had an income, she had cash flow. So she didn't have to eat instant noodles. After 12 months of waiting to be married, we finally stood in front of a crowd of friends and family to, ready to commit our lives to each other. And on that day, I received so many wonderful things, the most important of which was a beautiful, godly wife. But do you know what else I received on that day? Cash flow. <laughs> it was glorious. At one moment, I stood there with nothing in my bank account. I said two words, I do and then all of a sudden my bank account was full. 
and I didn't have to do anything to earn it. I didn't have to go to her school and teach her five-year-old kids. I didn't have to get a job anywhere else for that matter. Simply because my life was now united with hers, praise God, that everything that belonged to her became mine. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, in a much greater way, When we come to Jesus, when we put our faith in him, when we trust him, praise God that at that moment, everything that belongs to him becomes ours. So let us gasp in awe and wonder together. And then let's tell everyone about this. Romans chapter 10, verses 10 to 15. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how then can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Here in our final passage, Paul has been explaining the failure of his people, the Jews, to hear and believe the good news of Jesus. And in the middle of this section of this argument, he points out the big challenge. Everyone needs to hear the gospel to believe it. When they believe it, when then they are justified. But how are they to believe if they haven't heard? And how are they to hear without someone to preach to them? And how can someone preach to them if they are not sent? So we must go. And we must send the right people to tell this great news of Jesus to the world. Justification is the idea that changed the church. And it is the idea that changes our world. Because it brings everyone who believes in Jesus into union with him. Everyone from every tribe, every language, and every nation in union with Jesus eternally. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what wondrous, good, beautiful news it is that we are your children, united together with your Son, receiving everything that belongs to him. We didn't earn that at all. Help us understand this, that we might gasp again at how good you are. Help us understand this and then grow in us a desire to preach this great news to the world, to this world where people are trying to earn their way, their way to you, to, to preach to this world that, that doesn't know you, that continues to live in rebellion against you. Help us to believe this, to preach it on and to send others, and to do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.